Thank you, Daniel, for joining me. You've been doing business for the last couple of years, and uh, I know you. I know your company. I know Flowcare. What you guys do, and perhaps you could share with us what uh, you do at Flowcare and what Flowcare can do for what Flowcare is doing for businesses out there. Well, thanks, Fusi, and uh, great to be chatting to you today. Uh, so Flowgear is really just about integrating different apps together. Uh, the premise is very simple. Uh, if you think back 20 years, we had very few applications that we'd use to run our businesses. We tended to have these big monoliths and we'd patch on module after module. So basically everything happened in one place. And then as we got into kind of the, the 90s and early 2000s, we started to uh, use more specialized software, but it still all lived on premise and we had complete control over that data. Uh, so we could move stuff around between databases and files if we needed to. And enter the advent of cloud, and of course, uh, Salesforce, as I'm sure you well know, uh, launched in 99 was basically the first cloud service and, and started a, a global trend in that regard. Uh, suddenly, the systems that we previously had control of were not within our domain of control any longer. So we were uh, almost reduced, in a sense, to being able to interact with all of these new systems that we were using um, through those APIs, and, and hence the need for integration. And so that's what we seek to address, is to give you a platform that allows you to visually build the integrations between those systems without having to get into the weeds of the, the technical complexity around that, so that you could just focus on where the data needs to show up and how, and it will support the cadence that you have for your business as a whole. Oh, thank you for that. No, it's, it's quite sounds like quite an interesting journey. And maybe you could elaborate a bit more on the journey itself, because uh, seeing where Flowgear is featuring at the moment, you guys are by no means a small player in that space. Uh, what has your journey been like? Well, I think just to kind of think back to where the, the interest started, you know, pr previously I was in a, a software development role at, at another company and we built out a, a CRM, a very basic CRM, even probably by then, by the standards of that day. Um, but what was happening is every time we sold the CRM to our customers, they liked the product. But the problem was they needed it to integrate into their existing system. So, you know, you'd create a quote in the CRM and the quote would be accepted. And now it needed to become an invoice in the accounting system. And what we were doing back then is just hand coding the same integration over and over again to generate an invoice or sync a customer or the, or the inventory. And so that's kind of where the idea came from. And, and in my sort of naivety, uh, just, well, there must be a better way to do this. What if we created some platform that, that had this element of reusability to it? And, and back then, I didn't even know that enterprise service buses were a thing. Um, and so that's that's actually where the predecessor business to Flowgear came from. Uh, and we did that for about three years. We had this on-premise tool that just focused on a few uh, popular uh, ERPs and, and CRMs in the South African market. And then in 2010, we decided to reboot the whole thing and build it as a cloud service. Um, and I must say that in those early years, it was uh, an unusual concept. And usually after explaining just what it was we did, the second thing we had to do was explain why we were doing it as a cloud service. Um, and that's changed. I, I think people understand why that is now as they're consuming more and more. Um, a lot of customers don't want to get into having to manage the infrastructure and, and the uptime and the patching. And, and so there's a real value and utility to a service. So I think that the biggest thing that's changed is just more and more has gone into cloud. 
Um, and we're also seeing an increasing level of maturity around the APIs that we're using to connect in. So even if I just think back 10 years ago, um, you know, you could do the basics through an API for a, a CRM. You could, you know, create records and do some basic queries, but it was really, really difficult to work with large volumes of data and do the sort of precise filtering and, and authentication that you might need. And, and those are certainly things that have changed um, over the past 10 years. Oh, yeah, sounds like it was quite a journey as well from where you guys started started off and where you are now. Just out of interest, I mean, when you look at applications like Salesforce, they offer their own integration and a lot of uh, companies are offering their own integrations uh, within some of these big, big platforms like Salesforce. Yeah. Uh, what's your take on that and why would I go for a, a solution like Flowgear as opposed to um, using some of those bespoke, custom-built, uh, pl platform-specific um, components that have been built in applications like Salesforce. Right. Well, I think there certainly are many cases where using the vendor provided integration tooling is absolutely the right way to go. But there comes a point where you become cognizant that the vendor is ultimately building selfish tooling. So selfish will build into Salesforce will build integration around um, anything that benefits them as a platform. What they won't do is help you out with integration into a product that might be perceived as competitive or a, into a product that just has nothing to do with Salesforce, but is important for your business. And, and that's why you need in, independent integration platforms. Being in that position, uh, we're in a situation where we're uh, heavily invested in building connectors across you know, many different uh, uh, types of verticals, many different competing products. And that's just, a, uh, we don't have the conflicts that a vendor would have if they were trying to build that for themselves. So um, generally speaking, the um, integration layers that are provided by the platform um, are, are good if the integrations are very centric to that platform. So things that are very closely related to Salesforce. Where you would use a platform like ours is where Salesforce is one piece out of a number. Maybe there's an ERP in there. Maybe there's a, an HR system. Maybe there's an e-commerce storefront, um, all of which have nothing to do with Salesforce. That's a scenario where you'd want to look at using a third-party platform. And by making an investment in one of those, like Flowgear, um, you're ensuring that you're not going to be locked in by that vendor. You're free to choose the products that work best for your business because there's no conflict from our perspective. We just want to get connectors added for every conceivable product. Thanks. Thanks for that. Uh, that's very informative. So would you be, then be able to um, coexist with other integration platforms? I mean, what's your take on that? Yeah, I, I think at two levels, uh, in, in fact, probably three levels. So there certainly are scenarios where we coexist with custom integrations. And that's because these these clients were using those custom integrations before they came, you know, we came along and, and they, they started to adopt our platform. And so we don't kind of want to throw everything out that's working. Instead, what would happen is um, once that custom integration gets to a point where you need to change a feature, that might be a scenario where you consider uh, migrating into the platform instead. The second would be the, the sort of vendor integrations that you alluded to. So there might be cases where certain things are best serviced through the, the Salesforce platform and, and don't need to go through Flowgear. Where Flowgear is going to do the job best is where you're connecting across many systems which have nothing to do with Salesforce or, or the other sort of key uh, products that your business is relying on. There are situations where we do um, coexist with other uh, platforms that are, are, are more directly comparable with um, Flowgear, 
but uh, it's it's more around uh, sort of more esoteric connectors that we don't necessarily have support for, or because we're involved with a multinational and in certain uh, BUs they have other products in place. Obviously, we'd like to see uh, that to be replaced out over time. Um, but you know, we, we think the platform is a is a, a good offering in its own right. And generally speaking, once we've got the first few projects done and and our clients start to um, you know, see the benefit and we've kind of won their trust, then progressively over time, more and more of the integrations are moved over to, to Flowgear. Well, thanks, Daniel. Yeah, that, that's also very informative uh, information there. So when you look at uh, some of the trends that have been um, happening, over, especially over the last year of 2020, we saw a lot of digital transformation taking place out there. What have you seen in your spaces, particularly in the inter in integration space? Well, I, I think we've certainly seen a, a massive uptick in the, uh, I, I, I guess, the degree to which businesses want to move on that digitalization journey, as it's being called these days. Um, you know, just to pick an obvious example, if, you, if you're in retail and you've been shut down for months, then you're certainly going to want to polish up your, um, your online service offering, you know, your, your online shopping experience. Um, you know, most vendors already have something there, um, but it's a question of honing that. So how, how can you make that better? There might, might have been a rebuild of that. Um, and from an integration perspective, usually deeper integration, not just into the sources for the for that data. So, for example, your your inventory data obviously needs to be sourced out of your ERP, um, but perhaps additional integrations where you can start to feed information from the data that you have sitting in CRM, so you can do relevant product suggestions. Those are the types of things that we've we've typically seen change um, over 2020. Yeah, I think there's there's just a, a general broadening of the connectors that we're offering. Um, so, you know, we're, we're trying to push out at least one connector per month. And uh, generally, you know, th those connectors have to be updated as well. So even those that we've had previously, they're getting refreshed, depends on the, the cadence of the re release of the product update by the vendor. But, you know, as, as new features are supported by those vendors, so they're going to be supported through our connector as well. I think the, the kind of overarching trend for us is much more of a, a move away from uh, kind of disconnected ETL processes into real-time API-driven processes. So um, what that means is, you know, if, if I look back several years, a lot of the workloads that our platform was servicing were ETL in the sense that they'd run on some kind of schedule or trigger. They'd pick up some data like, a, you know, changed customer records and then, you know, sync them through to the, the ERP for argument's sake. Um, and we certainly still have that kind of thing, but it's quickly being surpassed by API uh, invoked integrations instead. So for example, a vendor's built a mobile app um, and that mobile app is delivering some kind of customer experience. Maybe maybe it's allowing them to manage their, um, you know, their, their service booking or a you know, product purchase. Um, and Flowgear is being used as the intermediary layer. So kind of the enterprise API that calls back into the business and, and figures out where to get the relevant data to them on a real-time basis. Um, so that's those are the things that we're working on. We've done a lot of work uh, quite recently to um, improve the performance and the sort of throughput that we can get out of those types of use cases. Late last year, we also strengthened the, the security and the way that we um, allow those types of calls to be authorized. And, and that really is where we see um, those requirements coming. Um, 
Also, in terms of the consumption of the platform, um, there's less emphasis, as I mentioned, on this kind of regular um, sync of changed records and more emphasis on uh, kind of high volumes of real-time syncs. Um, and so what that's necessitated is quite a lot of work happening in our platform um, to support those kinds of volumes. There's, there's certain things that work well at, at certain volumes and then the, the architecture starts to kind of cap out and you've got to rethink it. So we're in the middle of some pretty significant changes and we, we hope to be ported over to a completely new architecture around uh, mid-year this year. Okay. Now you touched on two very um, pertinent points, which is which for me are security and scalability. Now you, you mentioned how secure, I mean, just how secure is, is Flokia? What have you guys found? Have there been any breaches yeah. in your security? And, and lastly, well, or secondly, uh, scalability. How scalable is a solution? Yeah, so, you know, when, when we started going 10 years back now, um, our idea of multi-tenancy was very different to what it is today. So, you know, we, ha we had like these shared databases um, and we, we had to kind of jump through some hoops to make sure that we had the appropriate level of isolation between uh, different customers data and the way that it executes and, and the way that we sandbox and a lot of all a lot of that stuff has changed quite dramatically um, certainly as um, you know containers have risen to prominence um, we're adopting those types of strategies to get a much higher degree of isolation what we're also finding is um, you know where we started with much smaller clients typically um, we're now starting to access much larger customers especially in some of our foreign markets and they're a lot more demanding in terms of the the kind of rigor of, of requirements and, and so compliance that we have to meet. So a lot of the changes that we're working on are moving in that regard. Um, and again, you know, this is this is kind of a continuum. It's never done, right? So there's there's continuously new things that you've got to be able to do. Um, so it's it's not just the architecture. It's also about being able to prove that you've architected something in a certain way. And I think. You know, there's there's big focus on that from a feature perspective. The other thing that's happened is although GDPR has been around for a long time, it's really created a huge amount of awareness around, um, you know, not even just where the data is sitting, but where it's being processed. Or is it personally identifiable information? If it is, um, you know, is that being tagged as such? And what we've seen is that the vendors that we use, you know, we, we use Microsoft Azure, um, they've deployed features that kind of keep pace with those demands. So, you know, it's now possible to tag different types of data sets in a database. And so we're leveraging those capabilities so that we can meet customer requirements. Um, so in summary, a lot of it, yes, of, of course, the transports need to be uh, secure. You need to be using vaults to store um, the uh, certificates to encrypt information. That, that's kind of the run-of-the-mill stuff. Um, but you also now need to be able to demonstrate to customers how you're treating their data. So there's a, a level of transparency that we're uh, working towards around how that gets done. So what are we storing internally? How do we deal with the logs? Even down to the culling process. You know, some some customers want to keep logs, some don't want to keep logs, and they have different reasons for that. So it's about being able to show that you can comply with that. And I think if you do that right and you stay ahead of where the, the market generally is, then that's certainly a competitive advantage. Oh, thanks, thanks, Daniel. Uh, any advice for IT departments, CIOs that are on the market for iPad solutions? Well, I mean, obviously I'm very biased, but I think it's good to shop around. Um, our, you know what we found very successful is obviously we don't carry the brand recognition that the, the mega vendors and the, the sort of very heavily funded vendors do. And so our strategy has always been a kind of try before you buy. And it's been, it's certainly been very effective for us, but we do, we feel it's very fair for our, our prospective clients as well, um, because 
Yeah, we could sell them on anything based on a slide deck, but if we actually build something that they're asking for and present that to them and, and that's done before they're making any commitment, I feel like that's a really fair way to get an evaluation. So we call that a proof of concept. We put in a lot of time to do that. There's no onus on, on our customers. Um, and oftentimes a, a prospective client will come to us and they'll say, look, you know, we have to look at three vendors. You're, you're one of three. Um, and we'll just say, you know, just what we'd like to say is, do, do a, a, an apples for apples comparison. Um, agree on a proof of concept, have all three vendors submit something equivalent, and then you're in a, an empowered position to, to make that call. And I, I think this is something that happens in enterprise software a lot. It's very easy to get um, sold on features that do exist, but they don't quite fit the way that the business had anticipated they would. So try before you buy would probably be my, uh, my, my best advice I'd be able to offer there. And just on that note, I mean, do you offer any trials uh, with the flow here? Yeah, there's actually a, a few things. Um, so one is, uh, you know, anyone can sign up for a trial account. Um, second is we have a, a certification course that certainly our partners and self-serve clients use it, but we even encourage prospective clients to try it out. Sometimes there, there are developers on the team at a client or a prospective partner um, who just want to get closer to the platform. Um, and the course is actually a good way to skill up. Even if they don't officially certify, they can still you know skim through the content. And then the third uh, item would be that proof of concept. So we would just discuss at a high level, what do you want to integrate, you know, product A into product B, here's some rules. Um, we try not to create overhead on the client, they're busy with many other things, and so we'll make tons of assumptions around the data mapping, that kind of thing, but we'll bake out a series of integrations and then live present that back so they can actually see what it's doing. And then if they do have technical teams who want to do a deeper evaluation, we hand over those designs to them so that they can tinker and, and you know, review it at their leisure as well. Perfect. And finally, just um, over the years, we've seen how the IT industry has, has changed. It's changed quite drastically. Any advice for those aspiring to get into the industry? Um, sure. What advice would you give them? Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm getting to that age where I'm a little nostalgic. And um, although it wasn't my time, I've been reading this uh, an excellent blog series at uh, philfray.net. Uh, it's, uh, it's written by an American, I think he previously was a developer, but he, um, he just kind of chronicles the rise of game development and early PC starting literally in the 70s. And I think I'm up to about 1981 by now. And what's just really striking is how the field was so immature that one person could just kind of do everything. You know, they designed the game, they'd implement the engine for it, they'd do the marketing and distribution, and, and some of these games were phenomenally successful. Um, and the reason I mention this is that's not today. The industry's all grown up. And unless there's this, you know, brand new area of tech where you have a year or two and it's, it's very immature, um, generally, you know, any career that you go into today is going to end up being more than likely very specialized. And so probably the best advice I could give is maybe two things. One is if you're a young person and you, you have a, you know, you have a penchant for this area, maybe it's software, um, tinker with a lot of things, you know, try out a lot of different tech steps, uh, stacks, uh, play with um, some of the, the hot areas, because the reality is that once you've completed your studies and, and once you've had your first year or two in, in you know, your professional career, you're going to get locked into an area of specialization. It's very difficult to change that. So you kind of want to be sure around where you want to go in on, on, at the outside. And then the second thing is, and I just see this when we are looking to hire is, 
it makes a huge difference the impression that you create if you have some hobby projects and, and personal stuff that you're doing on the side and, and i'm speaking particularly about the software developers that we'd hire um you know if you've got a github repo that's been well built and you know or you've got a couple of projects that have been well designed they're not just forks of someone else's work. It's actually something you've authored yourself. Um, first of all, that looks great on your resume. It's certainly something that a prospective employee, employer would, would take very seriously. Um, but secondly, it's, it's probably one of the best ways to hone your skills, just that gradual tinkering on your own time. Well, thanks, Wilson. It's been great to chat to you and also looking forward to the year together. Thank you.